if you're a sports lover and they see it, they're going to try to make you more of a sports lover. Not that being, hey, ESPN, God bless. You know, you know, <laughs> they're, they're yeah, watch it. Sport, but who were you going to be? What were you going to do when your reality is reconfiguring itself based on how can we extract the most value from this little tendency that we've just seen? It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. On today's show, one of my favorite thinkers and someone I feel like I could just sit and listen to talk forever, though it won't be that long, Douglas Rushkoff. I remember the first time I saw him speak, the conference room near Lincoln Center. I was in the uncomfortable chair I was sitting in, but I also remember the way I immediately thought to myself, I want to like hear and read everything this guy has to say. So it's pretty cool that he is now coming on this show. It's kind of hard to describe exactly what Doug Rushkoff is. I think media theorist is probably the most accurate term, if a little highfalutin. But basically, he's explored different angles of what I think is one of the most important questions you can ask. Namely, in our digital lives, how do we retain agency? How do we make sure there's a spirit of empowerment and community, even as we're bombarded with ads and data collection and corporations trying to make a big buck? So, yeah, this episode with Doug talks about all of that stuff and his new book, and he puts it far better than I just put it. That's coming up in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Excuse me, can I tell you a number? Sure. The number is 17 seconds. It's going to take a little bit for me to contextualize it. Okay. But 17 seconds, um, you know when you are becoming a doctor, you get uh, you get matched right. with the hospital, yeah. right? Are you familiar with that process? Yeah, a lot of my friends are getting matched like right now. And they like all know that they got matched, but they don't know where they're going to. I don't know. Exactly. So... 17 seconds is actually how long the algorithm that matches the thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, in the United States who are waiting and waiting and waiting, just like your friends, to get matched. A computer, it only takes it 17 seconds to figure out where everyone's going to go. Oh, that sucks for them. <laughs> it's really not fair. I feel like that's a lot. It's like a lot of waiting for like no reason if they don't really have to. Do you think they would be uh, feel a little betrayed if they knew that it was only a 17-second process? They would probably be like, why am I waiting a week? That's what I would feel like. I'd be like, why am I waiting weeks to find this out if you already know? Tell me where I'm going. I would like to know if I'm going to Alaska or Vermont. Like, let me know. Those are your only two options, though? I mean, no. Uh, If I'm in medical school, I'm probably like... You go wherever. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to see the outside world. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where I go. Let's get a little more context on that number from Anna Barry Jester, who... You're in town this week, Anna, so we're going to take advantage of you being here. But you have actually written about the match. So you're the perfect person to talk about this. Welcome to What's the Point? Thanks for having me back. Now, I am obsessed with this notion of this 17 seconds number. We'll get into some of the reporting you've done, but like it really takes 17 seconds to do all of this work that affects all of these people's lives and is like this drawn out process over weeks and weeks and weeks and some computer just knocks it out in 17 seconds? Yeah, I mean, that's how long the algorithm takes. Of course, there's a lot of human sweat and blood that goes into everything before and after that, but yeah, it's like Pete's fates decided in moments. But why is why does this 
process get drawn out for so long? Yeah, I mean, so the 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 match program says, you know, look, there's a lot of stuff that has to go into this. We have to like verify that the students are who they say they are, that they're eligible. You know, of course, there are some random people who apply for the residency match residency every year who actually aren't medical students. That kind of stuff. you know, just little stuff like that. And then they have to prepare all these reports to let people know where they're going to end up. So they say that's why it takes something like 23 days, but. You know, you can imagine how frustrating that is for students. Yeah, so I know there are people out there who are suspicious of of the way this match happens. Yeah, I think there's some. It's generally accepted, but there are certainly people who don't like this. So the it, ones who didn't get the match they wanted. Well, actually, it's not necessarily that. Sometimes it's the top students, and it's because so. in back in the day, you would sort of, you know, the best best students would apply where they wanted to go. They would interview at all of these places, and they'd be you know sought after by the mm-hmm. you know they'd be get, kind of have be fond of. Over, if you will. And that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. So there are people who think, you know, like if you're the plastic, uh, plastic surgery residencies don't take very many. And if you're the, you know, the one person who kind of misses out, you feel like maybe if it wasn't this algorithm that in the past you might have been able to get it, you know, have, by doing an interview and that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of controversy about it. But I think people generally feel like this is much more stable than the way things used to be. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. And we encourage everyone to go read Anna Barry Jester's piece from last year. But again, it comes up every year because the match happens. But thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, my conversation with Doug Rushkoff. First, some context before we dive in. As I mentioned, he was an early advocate of the power of the Internet to connect people and build communities, political, social, economic. And he's been a watcher of the way in which many of those communities have been co-opted by companies. And his newest book goes right at that economic question. He thinks in particular the main problem is that companies are asked to grow, to always be expanding rather than focusing on what they do best. Rushkoff's newest book is called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. That's a reference to an incident where protesters, particularly concerned with gentrification, threw rocks at the bus that takes Google employees from San Francisco down to Google headquarters south of the city in Silicon Valley. You don't have to read too deep to see the metaphor there of old technology and new, of real-life communities versus virtual behemoths. But the book isn't exactly a simple defense of the rock throwers, and I started by pushing him to talk about the kinds of solutions he's proposing. I'll be honest, this conversation gets pretty quasi-Marxist pretty quick, but I promise there's data talk in there. Anyway, here's Doug Rushkoff talking about what comes next after the rock throwing. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot that people have to do. I even brought a little piece of paper. I put, I, I keep with me with all of my little here. You know, there's an all app. my little innovation. There's an app. There's, there's a new app, app that would disrupt that piece of paper. I, really, I'm sure yeah. there is, but this has worked really well. This piece of paper. You can make the forest fire sound. This paper. Um, but um, I called this book "Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus" not because I want people to do it, but. To identify the shared frustration we have. Google was the do-no-evil company that came out of a dorm room in Stanford. These were the companies that we thought were going to do something different. Now Google is a holding company. It's not even Google anymore. It's a holding company called Alphabet, which makes its money by buying and selling companies. So it's just Wall Street. That how did this all get surrendered is sort of the first part of the book that I'm looking at. It didn't get surrendered to Wall Street. It's that it just accepted the underlying codes, the mm-hmm. operating system of Wall Street, as if that was the only way to do it. So I'm arguing 
for a lot of things. Uh, larger companies can start delivering dividends instead of increases in share price. Look at how to distribute money. We have to optimize the digital economy, not for the extraction of value and its conversion into capital, but for the circulation, the velocity of money. So right now, most companies function like Walmart. They go to a town and think, how do I vacuum out the money to deliver it to shareholders? Even if I make my Uber drivers bankrupt, even if I destroy neighborhoods with Airbnb, it doesn't really matter. It's this scorched earth policy. You realize that's short-sighted. Even Walmart now realizes, oh my gosh, we've bankrupted so many towns, we have to close some of our stores because there's no more customers. So if you think about your business not as something that's going to take everybody's money, but actually create enough value that you have wealthy customers, wealthy employees, and a living economy around you, uh, you're much better off. So for a digital business, that would mean like YouTube does just a teeny bit, um, gives the people who upload videos, it can give them some of the revenue that they make off the advertising. You know, it's not a sustainable model yet because they don't give enough. But imagine if Google actually gave. But aren't we those seeing more enough. and more of that? I mean, we can call it the shared economy, right? But I mean, those shared economies, right now, they are they are configured not to share the revenue with those people. They are configured to extract as much labor and capital from those people as possible. Uber drivers do not have a sustainable career. They're unemployed people and they have to, it's better than begging in the street, but they can't stay alive, especially with last month's 15% cut because the drivers are not looked at as anything but a resource to be extracted. They're not looked at as a community or an economy to sustain. If they looked at it, even with the perspective of a Henry Ford, you know, Henry Ford famously said, I've got to pay the people who work at Ford at least enough money so they can afford to buy a Ford car. And if I'm not doing that, then there's a problem with this picture. Well, right now we're in that Amazon Turks and, and Uber and Airbnb. These are platforms that extract more value than they facilitate. The alternative would be what's called a platform cooperative. What if Uber, before they go public, set aside just 10% of their shares for the drivers of Uber, distributed proportionate to how much revenue they've actually created? That changes the whole equation. Because as we know, the drivers of Uber, they're not taxi drivers. They're doing research and development for a company that will replace them as soon as possible with robot cars. But those things that you just outlined, you know, revenue sharing, protections for workers, those are the things that we tend to associate with big companies. That's why people go to work for big companies. You get healthcare, perhaps you're in a union, maybe less and less. But, you know, I, I just I guess I'm trying to figure out whether you're advocating for traditional big companies that protect their workers or small distributed paradigms that still somehow don't leave people hanging you know, well, on the vine. What you're talking about, it's harder and harder for big companies to do. That's why they got rid of pensions and put us all into our own private accounts where everyone does worse except for the financial industry, which does great. So it got harder and harder for big companies on the big exchanges once they lost their real growth potential by going into developing nations and building factories there and using slave labor and extracting minerals and all that. Once they lost that, it was much harder for them to treat their workers the way that may be appropriate. So th those those kinds of benefits went away for almost. I mean, you're lucky here, Disney. You know, they still 
I'm sure you still get health insurance and things yeah, like that. You I know? get it through my through my wife, who actually is a public school teacher. So talk about uh, still knock on wood. Oh, the existing, public. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but yeah. there's there's ways to optimize your business, particularly if it's smaller, for creating value for your employees, creating value for your customers, not thinking even of your vendors as people that you want to squeeze, but vendors as people you want to do really well. Part of it has to do, and it does work better on a smaller scale, part of it has to do with kind of boundaried investment, thinking about having boundaries around it and, and investing in ways that the money comes back to you. So the the steel workers, for example, they take their retirement funds and they invest them in projects that hire steel workers. Now, it's, that sounds really s- simple, but it's a, extremely clever because now they've not only invested their money, but they've invested in things that create jobs for themselves. So they end up double dipping, using the mm-hmm. same dollar twice or three times. If you do investment in your community, if if a big bank even, rather than giving uh, 100% of the loan to a restaurant that wants to expand, what if it gives 50% of the loan itself and then facilitates crowdfunding from the community for the other half of it? Then the bank can actually be seen as and function as a facilitator of local economic activity rather than just the extractor of value from that community. And people who do invest in the pizzeria say – Maybe they put $100 in in order to get $120 of pizza at the expanded restaurant. So they've made $20 on their investment, 20%, which is more than they're going to make anywhere else. And they've invested in their town. They've made their main street better. They've increased the tax base. They've increased their property value. They've made their public schools better. And they have a bigger place to go eat at. I'll do it if it's a Thai restaurant, but not a pizza shop. We have enough Too much pizza. cheese. Yeah, and we have enough pizza gluten. shops in my neighborhood. All right. Okay, we do need to talk explicitly about data since this is a data podcast, even though we've sort of been nibbling around the kind of data-driven companies and how they're different from other companies. You do write about it in the book, and I kind of want to just read a little paragraph from, from the book. It seems as if every startup has to have a, quote, big data play. Yet, when we take into account the fact that the revenue supporting big data apps must presumably come out of that same constant 5% of the GDP associated with marketing and advertising, it becomes clear that such a payout can't possibly come to pass. In fact, our increasing dependence on big data solutions may actually limit the growth it's supposed to be stoking. What do you mean by that? There's a bunch of stuff in there. Yeah, Big data ultimately, I think, limits the innovative potential of a lot of the companies who use it. And it's because of the way they use it. So say uh, Facebook. You know, Facebook uses our past actions to put us into big data categories where they'll find out, oh, you know, uh, Jody is 80% likely to go on a diet in the next month. And then... uh, all of a sudden, miraculously, your news feed is going to be filled with, hey, Jody, are you fat? Are you, you know, have a health problem or this? And it's not just because they want to make sure that people who have an 80% chance of going on a diet will see these ads from our sponsors, but they want to increase the likelihood that that 20% will also go on a diet, the 20% who may not have. So the object of the game is to reduce anomalous, strange, 
uh, out of statistical probability behaviors to reduce those and get you to behave truer to your statistical right, we've profile. We've talked about this on the show before that you know your past actions become basically who you are and and in order for an algorithm to really understand you it's better if you just act according to type. Right, and they're going to push you to act more according to your type. But as you act more according to your type and as the marketplace becomes more and more predetermined and predictable, you actually don't get growth. You don't get innovation. Why? Because now you have designers who, instead of being encouraged to come up with their own new crazy ideas, they're being encouraged to do the things that have been proven by the data to deliver results. And even your marketplace, a lot of times in thriving marketplaces, a lot of ideas come from the bottom up. You see new consumer behaviors and then you go, oh my gosh, look at what these kids are doing. There's a product in that. I think there's that line from Alexis Magico talks about, I saw the greatest minds of my generation trying to figure out how to get people to click on banner ads. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess that's what you're saying is that if we don't encourage the possibility for weirdness or you know weird behavior or unexpected behavior, then we don't end up with actual innovation. And as you end up with more predictable, controlled consumers, you have a less innovative society at the same time. We're spending our programming dollars inducing Pavlovian behavior in people. The kids who come out of Stanford and go through uh, B.J. Fogg's Captology Lab – or go to Goldman Sachs to write algorithms. We're using machines to second guess and extract value from humans. Human traders are lost on Wall Street now because there's ultra-fast algorithms that see what they're going to do before they do it and counter the trade before it's been, uh, before it's been executed. One thing you write about in, in your section on data is that we, you know, we obsess about the creepiness of a corporation or a government kind of knowing about us as individuals. But you kind of say that the part that creeps you out the most is, is the metadata notion, mm-hmm. that to think of yourself as grouped, not as an individual. Right. I know people, when they think of privacy, they think of the content rather than the context. So the privacy is like, oh, does Coca-Cola know that I masturbated? You know, it's like I, I'm, I don't know why Coca-Cola would want to know that, but I right. bet you but someone in Coca-Cola sure. is trying to and figure it do. out. And they do. <laughs> Believe me, statistically, they know I that. will never <laughs> be able to forget that notion. <laughs> Doug, you've been just implanted well, you that go. in my head. But yes, that's, can, the, that's the social programming of the activist in media trying to plant mimetic constructs that's, that slowly deteriorate <laughs> our, uh, our brand imagery. But um, – <laughs> It's not the specific thing that they're going to find out. They don't care. It's the groups that you're in. It's the metadata so that, you know, when you when you see the study that, oh, Facebook knows with 80 uh, percent accuracy whether a, a uh, adolescent boy is going to decide that they're homosexual in the next six months. Uh, that's weird. You know, that's weird for companies to know things about you that you don't yet know yourself, and they only know them in terms of probability. And then the world that you see, especially if you spend your time on a device, the world that you see is being configured to a probable reality that you haven't yet chosen. What you're saying is to some extent that is that a corporation doesn't want to get to know as much fine-grained information. They want to know the right amount of information to kind of slot you into a pretty higher-level category. Right, and then start treating you in a way that is geared to exacerbate whatever that is. 
if the, if you're a sports lover and they see it, they're going to try to make you more of a sports lover. Not that being, hey, ESPN, God bless. You know, you know that, that, <laughs> not that being it. a sports lover is a bad thing, but who were you going to be? What were you going to do when your reality is reconfiguring itself based on not who you are, what you want, and creating new possibilities, but reconfiguring itself based on how can we extract the most value from this little tendency that we've just seen when you're your Google search is so different from my Google search, and it's not different because it's optimizing itself for how are we going to help you be more you, but how are we going to help you be more statistical category 17.03C, uh, that's not good. That's about changing who you are in order to serve the market. This is exactly where I feel like you push me to think, which is this initial promise of the Internet as a place where you could actually sort of hack and craft your own path. And then the betrayal of that promise by corporations who basically turned it into a tool to craft you instead right. of the other way around. And, and you, you know, you talk about it at a, at a theoretical level, right. which right, well, we explored. But you I'm also saying... talk about it as like people don't can't like pull their devices apart right. anymore and actually tinker and all the sort of early internet things about actually manipulating yeah. the stuff in front of you. Right, but I'm I'm also trying to say it's not that Zuckerberg or Gates or someone is an evil person. What I'm trying to say is this is a systemic problem. It's because the companies that own the net and these companies have to grow. Right. They have to adopt these scorched earth tactics. And that's why the cell phone in your pocket, the smartphone in your pocket gets smarter about you with every swipe and you get dumber about it. That's why you live in this state of perpetual emergency interruption where you're being kept from doing the kinds of thought and cognition you you're, we're kept from even being able to read books because we're constantly interrupted we don't get to think we have less time to spend with our loved ones and to do the things we really want to do and we're increasingly addicted to and manipulated by technologies that do not serve us and don't have our best interests at heart and in order to unwind that i had to do this giant detour into corporate capitalism because i had to realize no it's not don't throw rocks at the people on the bus. It's not those kids' fault. They're listening to their bosses who are listening to their bosses who are listening to shareholders who may be you and me with our retirement plan having an S&P 500 in it. But that does, I guess, feel like an evolution in your thinking mm -hmm. because when I first started reading you, you were saying things like, you know, we should learn to code. We should take sort of personal agency back over our digital environment. And now, you know, you've really gone up the, the ladder and said it's really about – corporate structure. Yeah, but then we should learn to code that. If we're in a digital media environment, we can look at the founding uh, notions of corporatism and recode them, whether it's by creating nonprofits or uh, multiple purpose corporations or recoding money with alternative currencies or recoding uh, Fortune 100 companies even by having their shares become preferred shares that deliver dividends, which is what everyone's buying right now in the stock market gyration because they're understanding that, oh, it's okay to make money for a living. I don't have to cash out of this life. I want to actually live it and have uh, workers and fellows that I enjoy, rather than just looking at everybody as another mark 
to uh, to beat out. So how does this actually play out for what we could maybe call the you know algorithmically driven economy or the or businesses that are algorithmically driven? You talk about kind of what happened to Twitter when they went public. Is there something particular about this growth imperative that you feel like harms the sort of tech-based companies that I think yeah. you and I both care about the most because that's where sort of we we feel like this betrayal that you initially sure. talked about yeah. is, is – I mean it was, it was in the late 80s that corporations became aware of what I'm saying about how net profit over asset value had been decreasing. And in 1987, there was a biotech crash in largely NASDAQ, I guess. But um, a biotech crash, it brought down the stock market, and everybody was really freaked out. Then along came the Internet, where people were having all this fun and doing stuff, and companies like AOL grew really fast. And people said, oh, all that growth that we lost, that industrial industrial mm-hmm. economy is, 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 uh, is losing, the Internet is going to bring that. This new technology is going to be create all that growth. So investors pile in to these young startups, which had the ability to do something else. The internet economy has the ability to be distributed and circulatory. You know, people can well, people can really make money in very different ways because of the whole shareware phenomenon and crowdfunding. We saw the beginning of that really in the late eighties and early nineties. But a few companies grew really fast, and Wall Street said, ah. The Internet is our salvation. This can be the poster child for the next round of investment. So they buy companies, a company like Twitter, very early on, they'll throw in a whole lot of money, but they're expecting a 100x or a 1,000x, meaning a 100 times return or a 1,000 times return on their investment because of this kind of steroidal quality of these fast-growing Internet businesses. They grow from zero to a billion dollars in 12 months or 24 months. So they'll invest in something like Twitter, but then Twitter can't really be what it is anymore. Twitter now has to grow no matter what. And Twitter grew pretty well you know, for, a, for a, an application that essentially just delivers characters, what, 140 characters from one phone to another. They make $500 million in revenue a quarter. But this is considered an abject failure by Wall Street, who wants to see Twitter grow. Twitter has plateaued at about half a billion dollars a quarter. That should be fine. But no, they're not even allowed to deliver that revenue to their investors. They can't give that to their... They have to now try to So do- what is... What is the CEO of Twitter? I mean, what's your advice for the CEO of Twitter? Say, no, I'm not going to cash my, out when Wall Street ad- comes calling. Yes. My advice to Evan Williams, who is a friend of mine, is don't go public. Don't go to those investors. Don't take so much money. Because if you do, you're going to lose your company. And is that, a, is that economic advice or is that kind of a value-driven advice to him? It's both. He could actually, I think, make more money in the long term, certainly for more people, um, by having a revenue-based business rather than flipping his business to Wall Street. When I saw his face and those of the other Twitter founders on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the, the $4.3 billion under his face, I was sad for him. I thought, there goes. There goes the neighborhood. You, you know? were really sad for your friend when he made I was. I was billion? happy that he made these billions, although it's more money than he can possibly right. use and spend. And it's at the expense of this great app. I think Twitter will have to surrender its utility in order to try to get that last gasp of extraction from the market.
going back to this question of, of values, uh, I did a show recently about privacy and looking at how Google and Apple and Facebook think of privacy mm-hmm. differently. And one of the things I, I kind of learned coming out of that conversation was that the values of the leadership can really have a big effect. So you look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, very successful company, obviously, and his notion of privacy has really evolved over time kind of as he's become more powerful. And now you see Facebook, I think, taking some laudable stands with regards to privacy. You see Apple standing up to the government when it comes to phone encryption. So can't you get powerful and rich and also then be in a position to impose your values? Yeah, you can get powerful and rich like Bill Gates and start the Gates Foundation, like Mark Zuckerberg and say, oh, I'm going to give 90% of my billions. Mm -hmm. Um, But now what you've done is taken all this money out of circulation and now you, the benevolent hero, get to decide how is all this money going to be deployed. So it's a very anti-market notion, right? So you no longer believe that the market can distribute money or should. You think, I'm going to take all the poker chips off the table and then uh, uh, replace them in the areas where I think they'll do the most good. That's not an efficient way. You basically impoverished humanity and then try to throw some 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 money back where you think it should go. I'm happy that these folks have some values. The problem is for Everyone who gets to be a billionaire by doing this casino-like uh, investment scheme, there's thousands and thousands of companies that fail. And they fail not because they're bad ideas. They fail because the minute they sell their idea to a venture capitalist, they have to do this thing called pivoting. They have to leave whatever the successful business that they were in is and pivot towards a monster idea towards a long shot, moonshot, unicorn idea. And that's the problem. Even I can Twitter, tell you spent time in Silicon Valley. Yeah, you but, know all the but terms. Even Twitter. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so many companies that really could have delivered such terrific. And I've, I've watched them. I've seen their founders sell. And then the minute later realize, wait a minute. You mean I just sold my company? Yeah, that's what you did when you took all that investment. You sold your company. Now those those nice guys in sweaters are in charge of your company and they're going to tell you to change it. And they don't care if your company dies. Now, how many times does it take till you learn that, oh, okay, I could get this on paper $5 billion booby prize or I can have a company that that works and that employs people. And that was the, the original internet. You know, those of us who were involved in the internet in the early, we weren't, weren't thinking of it as, oh, I'm going to cash out of this thing. The object of the game is not to make enough money so you don't have to do anything. It's to make a whole lot of money doing the thing that you love doing. And those are two very different things. I promise, listeners, that all of that is in this book. We've covered a lot, but it is there. Oh, thanks. I mean, sadly or happily, depending on how you look at it, it's really, really hard to implement these kinds of things, to turn around 400 years of corporate capitalism without taking the three or four hours required to actually read a book. I mean, I wish (laughs) I could give it in a tweet. Well, like I said, I think you're one of these people who are kind of over the course of your body of work trying to push this conversation bit by bit. So I thank you for that. Thanks for coming in, man. This was really fun. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. 
Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. That's the name of Doug Rushkoff's new book. He also has done documentaries, hosted radio shows, gives lots of lectures. So I encourage you to check his stuff out. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We have studio help from Tony Chow, and our intern is Jonathan Yales. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. Don't forget, we've got a data visualization challenge going on with our friends at Dear Data. Spend a week tracking your podcast listening, then visualize it by drawing it on a postcard and send that postcard to me. It's not too late to start. I'm starting next week, in fact. So join in. You can find information at 538.com slash Dear Data. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. See you soon.